Welcome to Future Explorations. I'm glad you can join us. My name is Victor Martinez, and this podcast is dedicated to the exploration of the diversity in perspectives around the concepts of change as a constant we humans need to embrace, long-term thinking as an approach for everything we should build and create, and the limits that our human nature, physiology, society, environment, and technology impose on us by their own intrinsic characteristics. It is your task and mine to identify the connections between all views, to discover the interdependence and complementarity of knowledge and ideas. In that way, we might get a clearer picture of what that sustainable future could look like and how we can design the transition to get us there. Today, I have the honor to talk to Kendra Jewell, Kendra Jewell is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of British Columbia. They did their dissertation research on climate change impacts in coastal Florida. They are particularly interested in adding nuance to the idea of climate change denial and understanding how climate change denial is connected to broader social processes of domination. Kendra is originally from San Diego, but currently makes their home on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. So, Kendra, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excellent, thank you. Um, so in just in a, in, a, in a personal, informal way, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to study anthropology, it will be interesting to see some sort of inspiration for our audience. Maybe somebody out there wants to study anthropology after hearing you. Sure, yes. So yes, I'm, my name is Kendra Jewell. I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. I was drawn, I actually did my undergraduate degree in geography and, and philosophy. And I decided to pursue my graduate degree in anthropology, mostly for its method. I really liked and was attracted to the concept of ethnography as a research method, which we can talk more about if you'd like to. Um, and I've done a couple ethnograph ethnographic projects since you know making this turn to anthropology. I think it's a really useful and, and productive way to, to research the world. Um, and we need more of it uh, to to encounter the problems we're we're looking at. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I will be very interesting at some point to to um, uh, explore a little bit what what uh, will be or what are the relations you see between anthropology, geography, and philosophy that mm -hmm. I think is fascinating, especially especially you know thinking in the in the uh, diversity in our planet and geography mm -hmm. is obviously a, a way that shapes humans and the where they think that then comes into, into the philosopher, philosophy part. Um, so um, just, just thinking a little bit about our uh, audience, and because I had this problem too a while ago, um, the, the, what, what would you say, if, you know, coming from, from an expert in the field, what would you say is the difference between anthropology and sociology? Just by the name, we can think about, you know, humans and society, but coming from you, what, what would you say the, the main differences are? Sure. 
I'm less interested in sort of these, these disciplinary uh, differences. Uh, I think that social science is sort of, it's, it's, it's promiscuous uh, disciplinarily, right? Um, and that's sort of how I, how I imagined myself as a social scientist. But classically, you know, um, sociology was more focused on, um, on cities, on sort of urban uh, communities and, and city relations. And anthropology was more focused on sort of like, quote unquote, faraway ethnic communities, right? But today, this is all, this is all mixed up, right? Uh, geographers, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, gender scholars, they're all sort of, they're all sort of uh, in this, in this hodgepodge um, that sort of exceeds any one discipline. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. That's why I'm, I'm, I was interested to, to, you know, to hear from you because more and more I, I see these boundaries merging and somehow mm -hmm. they're not clear and 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 um, I have seen people you know working in the design field which is is my area that have come from arts and anthropology and sociology and they have all these mix of, of um, uh, backgrounds and it's, it's, it's very rich in, in that sense to have this this diverse plural mm -hmm. view of, of uh, different uh, aspects of a studying human and human organism. Sure. And I think so. another, another big one of the sociologists, they tend to, they tend to like data, uh, quantitative data, um, a little ah. bit more than anthropologists. So there's a little bit more like quantitative survey style data happening yeah. in, in sociology still, sort of a statistical analysis where anthropologists are more interested in sort of the, the ethnographic story, the qualitative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what what you said just a moment ago uh, gives me perfect cue to start uh, the interview in this in the uh, uh, sections that I've been running. So um, all the interviews I've been doing is uh, have been um, framed more or less uh, under three topics that I've been um, researching about and, and finding commonly in, in literature about. Um, there, I think they are key for understanding our way forward in for a sustainable future, and these are uh, change, the concept of change, um, long-term thinking, and limits. You know, it's like big, big, broad concepts. And you were just mentioning a moment ago that classically speaking, mm -hmm. ethnography, uh, sorry, uh, anthropology and sociology were very distinctive. In, in, and yeah, I, I, I can imagine this idea of the anthropology, this, this. Uh, British guy with those hats mm -hmm. in the middle of Africa, trying to understand, and, and I'll stop there because it gets tricky, but mm -hmm. has moved and has changed. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the understanding of what anthropology should study and how they mix between anthropology and sociology and philosophy and geography and all this is, is completely different. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, that would, be, that would be the first kind of concept, no? How, how change uh, uh, is dealt with or viewed in, in anthropology and, and what, what inspires you, the idea of change? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. It's true, anthropology as a discipline was, was traditionally these old, old white dudes going into, into these places um, to, to learn about populations in order to better control them, right? It was a colonial uh, project of power. <clears throat> and in many ways, anthropologists, you know, we're still reckoning with that history. And in many ways, that, that present that does still exist in, in certain ways. Um, mm -hmm. And we have a lot to account for in that. But I would say change as, you know, uh, as a broader concept, if there's one thing anthropologists have proven, it's that cultures, like everything else on our planet, are, are, are always in flux, right? There's no such thing as a stagnant culture. 
weather events, political events, changes in subsistence, right? All these and more reflect back on cultures, which then adapt to new situations. So this kind of cultural plasticity is exactly what we need to call upon uh, in the time of climate change, right? And it's one of the things that gives me hope that uh, human culture is hardwired to adapt to shifting environments. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's one, of, one of the things that I'm most intrigued about change in, in human behavior is especially, um, I don't know, there are different things that I would like to explore here. One of them is the cultural approach to the idea of change. Um, you know, coming, coming from a, a mostly Western tradition of, of seeing the world and understanding uh, the world, uh, change is, is not very welcome. No, we, we tend to, to, to see change as something negative, as something that provides uh, some sort of danger. And we seek uh, certainty and we seek stability. And, you know, I have these crazy theories about that's the root of most, most of our unsustainability because we mm -hmm. don't understand that universe is changing and the planet is constantly changing and also cultures. But I guess that the first question will be if, if um, I guess, two sides. One is, uh, what, from your perspective, what, what do you think is behind this reluctance to change? Uh, at least from what I know, from my, my view on this Western side of, 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 mm -hmm. of, of the story. And if there is any, any, any source of um, evidence or knowledge, understanding of other cultures, non-Western cultures that uh, embrace much more the idea of change. And they, they in that way, I'm pretty sure will be more resilient to, to uh, you know, environment changes and all the, all the things that are happening in their, in their uh, surrounding. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that this is a sort of Western, a Western view, because I think that it is. I think it's really important that idea of certainty of the unchanging. This is this is a Western and in many ways a new Western construct necessary for capitalism, which needs stability, right? It needs that sort of the assurance of, of certain growth uh, and and resource extraction, right? Which requires itself a kind of, of certainty. So it is new and it is Western. And there have been cultures throughout time and, and continue to be now. Um, that have adapted very willingly to, to shifting environments, right? Um, and so I think it's really important when we're asking this question to really interrogate the concept of the human as a homogenous thing. There's no correct answer to how humans as a whole react to change. We're talking about billions of people over 100,000 years, right? So speaking to today, a, a wealthy white person in Canada would react to, you know, say a natural disaster much differently than an impoverished person in Bangladesh simply based on the sort of differential privileges there. You know, there are very real structural powers that mediate how person X and Y will react to changes, you know, or can react to changes. Um, you know, if you're worried about your next meal, about paying rent, about some kind of acute trauma, I think it's reasonable to, to put the concept of sort of climate change uh, on the back burner. You know, there's a lot of privilege in the concept of, of climate anxiety. At the same time, it's really important that we start thinking about uh, humans and how humans react to change as a global collective, you know, but that we do so ethically and intentionally, right? So how do humans react to change? Back to your question. Um, I think it's a better question is how, how don't they, right? And how can we begin to coalesce as a species responsibly around a future that, that mandates change, but, but an ethical anti-racist change oriented towards harm reduction? Yeah. Okay, excellent. The there is any any um, anything you can think about um, from other cultures like, um, but what I'm I'm trying to organize my thought around is other cultures that uh, you know may not be in 
mainstream for a way of putting it in, in the last few hundred years, but that they, they hold knowledge um, about ways of adapting and ways of changing, uh, ways of making us more resilient. Um, one, one of the things that I, I, I discovered when I, I arrived to Canada um, is and, and uh, engaging with uh, some, some First Nations uh, friends now, who, um, uh, the, the idea of, for example, thinking about seven generations ahead, anything that you will do needs to be you know, thought about for what effect may have seven generations ahead. Um, that is something that obviously is, 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 is heavily missing in, in, uh, in Western civilization. Uh, you know, the, the idea in Europe and North America of, of this heavy influence of economics about growth and uh, what, is, what is driving us as a society is, is that, no? So do you think of any, or you can remember of any, any other sources of inspiration uh, of, of other cultures that we can go back and, and listen to, to, to understand other ways of thinking and other ways of doing? So many, you know, I, I mean, there are countless indigenous nations who, um, who are in relation with the world in, in a way that uh, would completely dismantle um, the sort of capitalist extractive paradigm that we operate within today. You know, and yes, this, this the seven generation principle is is crucial. And I think what's really important about that principle too is is that it's looking forward and backward. But we also have to look at the ways in which the uptick in and and tenor of mainstream climate anxiety is inseparable from the fact that privileged white people now feel that their futures are in jeopardy, right? That their seven generations ahead are now in jeopardy. Never mind that this crisis is centuries old. That indigenous peoples have been dealing with ecocide since at least the 15th century, or that people of color are forced to live with the environmental stressors their their white neighbors wanted out of their backyard. Right? So there's privilege in the climate anxiety, more worried about the future than the past or present. And that has to be accounted for if we have any hope for sort of, you know, a quote, just transition away from the carbon economy. So part of long-term thinking is looking backwards as well as forwards, you know, embodying this queer temporality of, of human existence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in, in that sense, um, what, what would you say, again, from your, from your expertise, our area of expertise, uh, what what drives decision making in humans? No, what what is the the uh, I don't know the, the key triggers or or the main obstacles to allow people to to, to make I don't even know what the right decision will be, but but decision making. Mm -hmm. Let's start from there. Sure. Well, let's just let's I'll bring it on to an example. And I think a lot about climate change denial in in my own work. My own work is based on um, whiteness and climate change denial and, and impacts in, in coastal Florida. So when you think about climate change denial, there's this concept called the information deficit, right? The possibility that climate change denial is simply a function of ignorance of this lack of information um, is pretty easy to swallow, right? The solution to climate change denial in the case of ignorance, you know, you present deniers with facts and then they draw rational conclusions from that about the state of the world. Right? This is how we thought about climate change denial for a long time. If they knew better, they'd do better. But <laughs> time and time again, you know, this simply presenting deniers with facts is not sufficient for communicating scientific truths. Part of that is due to the fact that climate change is you know, mediated by scientists who can seem elitist and untrustworthy, especially to sort of rightist people. But another part is deeper than that. In the climate change denial, one of my um, 
one of my passions is, is getting people to understand that climate change denial is not just something endemic to the right, to conservatives, right? This is an existential threat. It's personal. One of my favorite authors, Amitav Ghosh, says there's an excess to denialist attitudes that suggests the climate crisis threatens to unravel something deeper, without which large numbers of people would be at a loss to find meaning in their history and indeed their existence in the world, right? People are really, really good at avoiding information they find distressing. Climate change indexes things like solastalgia, guilt, pain, the stupefying prospect of rethinking entire economic systems, you know. And, and the haunting possibility that, that we, you know, all of us as a global collective, but especially white North Americans, are unthinking contributors to unimaginable global catastrophe, right? It's easier not to deal with that. So we push it to the edges of our awareness and we carry on. Yeah. And capitalism requires this, you know, it's always required it. We've been trained to look away from horror since, you know, it's very founding. Yes, yes. No, there are there are several topics there that that you just touched and and um, it's fascinating. So, I've been um, I've been reading and listening to some um, uh, psychologists, especially in cognition. And I I have um, an interview set for uh, in a few weeks time uh, with a psychologist. I'll I'll dig deeper in that topic. But what I I've been finding is 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 what what you're saying. You no, know? it's it's just delivering information is is just not enough. Um, and the trick that they have, well, the trick, the, 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 the deep issue, the core issue that they have found is that all comes down to worldviews. You know, what, what have you been taught from, you know, your, your environment, your family, uh, what the world should look like and what is it that you should be expecting? Um, that from one side and the idea that the next generation should be should live better than my than, than mine, you know, mm -hmm. and and that is perfectly fine, if if you are living you know in a in a in a cardboard uh, uh, made up little house without electricity without running water and all that, I can totally imagine that you want to improve that, but for me it has been a, a, a little bit shocking coming from from Latin America where. The, the extreme poverty is, is, is extremely visual, is, is there around us all the time. And, and you know, coming to a country like Canada, where I, I have lived also in, in, in Europe, um, and the idea of, of growth and improving has always been shocking to me. It's like, I don't, I don't really understand this idea of worldviews and how, how can we really understand that the worldview needs to also adapt to certain contexts, realities, resources. It seems that we think that there is no limit. And again, that's the other topic. Maybe I'm, I'm running too fast, but let's, let's step back a little bit to this idea of, of worldviews. What, what do mm -hmm. you think about? What have you encountered in your research that relates to that? And what makes you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great question. There are lots of people doing, lots of anthropologists doing research on this, right? Why people can't quite integrate, um, you know, what's going on in the world. Uh, I think a lot about how people imagine their futures. It's like this information isn't filtering into our bodies and affecting the ways we imagine ourselves and our future. We still want the same things, you know? We still wanna go on all these trips to Europe. We still want to have the three kids. We still want to eat meat five days a week. We still want all those things. Um, and we still, we still in many ways uh, imagine our futures the way we did when we were five, six, seven, eight years old. You know, um, we need to start reworking and reimagining 
how we yeah. want to live our futures um, in order for this to, to have any, you know, traction. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fascinating the idea on, of uh, how these, these worldviews are built in, in the first place, no? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, I, I know very little, but from what I know in the diversity of cultures around the planet, I'm just thinking the huge diversity, just thinking about, you know, um, Asia, Africa, and, and the, even Latin America itself, the amazing diversity and, and the, the amazing uh, worldviews, you know, um, how is, is there any, anything you can think of how these worldviews are built from, from this human perspective? And, and maybe if you want geography, geography, sorry, maybe we can tie to these, these other areas of view, geography and philosophy, how, how these worldviews are built in, in, in that sense and in these, these differences. I mean, great question. I don't know if there's one way they're built, right? Again, mm-hmm. I would say like, in what way aren't they built? There, there's everything is is working together. You know, um, your family, your belief system, your uh, the country you live in, the city you live in. You know, your politics, the media. They're all working together, um, and and you know, it coalesces in in this in this really complicated way into into what becomes your worldview. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that. Um, I really, I think about the power of queer thinking, capital Q, um, because there's something really powerful about breaking out of these, um, Anne Stoller calls them trained habits of attention, right? We're trained to look at certain things, to want certain things, and queer thinking allows us to break out of these. If we just go along and we and we, we go along with the flow, right? We, we take the path of least resistance, you know? We're good little neoliberal capitalist subjects. Um, who who want to buy the house, who want to have the three kids, X, Y, Z. We need to actively choose to imagine otherwise, to break yeah. out of those trained habits of attention. And that takes work, you know, and that's why people don't want to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. The the um, the idea of of breaking some some belief systems is I think probably the most the most complicated task that we have. And mm-hmm. and and I think you know when when um when i'm thinking about uh, queer and what i personally have been living through in 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 the last few few years that i don't know i'm 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 talking from my my male cisgender heterosexual point of view um it seems that suddenly is is exploding is is a lot of information uh, about about uh, queer and homosexual, and you know, we are now very aware about uh, pronouns and and uh, all these things that, for me, makes complete sense. Thinking about the diversity and the need for breaking systems and understanding who we have left behind or outside mm-hmm. completely of the mm-hmm. of the of the discourse of the narrative of building our world or our worlds. Mm-hmm. And I'm connecting this with, with uh, you know, indigenous populations all around the planet, not only in Canada, that beyond the knowledge that they surely have that could, could benefit us all, is the sense that, that we all have rights, we all have voices, and we should mm-hmm. all have the, the, the um, opportunity to be heard. Mm-hmm. And what I, 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 I'm, I'm just now literally reflecting uh, on, mm-hmm. on my own thinking is the idea that um, cultures that have been um, somehow in, in, in power holding the, 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 the steering wheel, 
so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, feel threatened when when you are breaking these 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 constructs, mm -hmm. these things mm -hmm. that provide you know benefits. And what I'm what I'm trying to arrive here is is to ask you. The, the idea of breaking systems or breaking these barriers and making or, or hoping to try to world a more equal place uh, inevitably means, and the, I guess this will be the question, somehow the demise or the, or the, 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 the downfall of, of uh, you know, the classic white, the heterosexual, male, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to see here or find is a, a point of common ground to say, look, we, we really need to find a point where we can meet and, and start talking. Because so far what I have, I mostly, not, not generally, but mostly is, is completely reaction. I say, no way, no, it's, it, this is my worldview and, and mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about these big things. So I, I don't know, in, in all this rambling that I just did there, I hope there is a question or a topic that, that you can- you can. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a lot elaborate. to pick up on there. You know, I, I think responsibly mitigating harms from climate change, responsibly creating a new future necessarily entails dismantling white supremacy. There is no climate change activism without anti-racist activism, right? Um, and vice versa. These things are so intertwined because what kind of world are we building what kind of future are we building? Um, what kind of harm mitigation are we engaging in if, if anti-racism is not at the forefront, right? Um, that is not a world I wanna be in. So these things, they need, to, they need to go hand in hand. There is no climate, there is no ethical climate justice yeah. without anti-racism. Um, um, sorry, sorry, finish. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, well, yeah, I, was, I was going to pick on that because the, the I think it would be worth to explore if you if you could explain in your words what what how would you define this white white supremacy? I know mm -hmm. it's, it's right. complicated, but no, I appreciate let's, that. Let's try to understand why white supremacy is because it can it can be surely misunderstood and and mm -hmm. take it to the extremes. And I, I would like mm -hmm. to try. I, I think there is a spectrum there, and I would like to mm -hmm. explore a little bit what that may be. Great. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. When we say white supremacy, you know, people often think of, of men in, in, in sort of sheets wearing, wearing pointy white hats. Right. We think of, we think of um, the scary alt-right uh, men on the online. And that's certainly part of white supremacy, right? That's sort of the, um, the colloquial view of it. But I'm talking about white supremacy as a, as a political system of domination, right? Um, by which I mean capitalism and white supremacy are one in the same. They are, they are bedfellows. Uh, the world has been structured the, through colonialism, through the Atlantic slave trade, uh, through this sort of European imperial domination um, to place you know, the, the sort of ideal human as a white human. And, and, and that, that has filtered down into structures all over the world. Um, Charles Mills, um, a, a scholar, a philosopher, um, argues that there's a, a racial contract that underwrites all contemporary political systems, right? Um, where the sort of superior, the, the, the superiority of whiteness is invisible to white people, and yet it still exists, right? So I'm talking about white supremacy as a sort of structure of political domination um, that we can see in things like racial inequality, wealth gaps, right, um, the, the ability of people to, to recover from natural disasters, right, we see these things again and again and again and again. Um, and it's all a function of 
white supremacy as a system of, of, of global domination. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm not really sure how to phrase what I, I'm, I have in my head now, because I'm, I'm thinking of all the good people that I have met and, and this, this relates to an, a new concept that I, I just learned, I have here in my notes I, from psychology that is called integrated complexity, mm -hmm. which basically means that you can be a really, truly amazing, beautiful person and still have one aspect that goes against some, some massive important things for probably billion of, billions of other people somewhere around the world. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to express in simple words what that is uh, mm -hmm. from, for different reasons. One is that there is a multiplicity of what those things could be mm -hmm. and how they relate to other people around, around, around the planet. Mm -hmm. So what, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is how can, how can we open a um, um, conversation to talk about why, what, why supremacy is how should we be working uh, to dismantle that or to mm -hmm. change that mm -hmm. without, without sounding, sounding uh, 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 that we are threatening, that we are trying to you know, get people out of, out of their houses and put them into caves or something like that, which <laughs> I'm absolutely certain many people think you know, that, that the whole idea of, of uh, mitigating climate change is go and live in a cave and, and mm -hmm. eat rats running from the ground. I don't know what type of mathematics. I mean, I mean, I mean, look, <sighs> dismantling white supremacy is threatening to white people and their power. They um, don't, yes. It is. Yes, and I think they don't know that though. Is, that's okay. You know, that's okay. And I think as white people, we need to, to acknowledge and, and get used to that. Um, and when you're asking people to give those things up, you're going to encounter resistance. Um, that doesn't mean we should not ask them to. to you of know. course, that's that's precisely the the uh, the worldview that the psychologists were finding. You no, know? when exactly you are you are threatening that worldview, obviously you mm -hmm. find re rejection. And I also recently found uh, an interesting research coming from Harvard because previous when I was thinking about you know people believing in climate change and not believing in climate change, I was very kind of binary, like. They mm -hmm. do or they don't, mm -hmm. and obviously I was wrong. There <laughs> right. is much more, much more now, now, now and see. Nuance. Word. Nuance. Mm -hmm. Sorry, thank you. That's okay. Um, and this this research found there are well, they propose six different levels in which three are in the denial side, but mm -hmm. with with degrees of denial. No, like really, truly against even talking about it, and then slowly mm -hmm. going into, uh, I don't care, but yeah, it's fine. And, mm -hmm. But also the important part is, is the ones that do believe in climate change, uh, but they are, you know, extremely worried and concerned and mm -hmm. maybe interest, but not really engaging in anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm obviously in the extreme, I'm extremely concerned. And I was feeling angst in the sense that I know people around me that they, they, uh, they understand what climate change is and they agree that it's happening but I don't, I don't see them worry. And, and that helped me understand that there are these other levels where, mm -hmm. where they are, mm -hmm. but they don't know, or they don't, not necessarily care, but they don't know how to react. Or mm -hmm. if they know how to, they, they, they don't want to because of all these power and, and commodities and, and comfort that we were, we were talking about. So any, and anything these, you want these, to these, Yeah, and these, these trained habits of attention, again, I think it's really important. You know, habitus is, is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept that, our bodies are stamped 
um, and it's just, our, our brains are, are literally physically underwritten, right, with patterns. And it takes, it's really, really hard for the average person to break out of those patterns. It's not impossible, but it's hard. So um, Greta, Greta Thunberg talk, talks about, you know, is openly uh, on the autism spectrum and talks about how perhaps that's one reason why she can't look away from climate change, right? Um, she's like, I can't, I can't bracket this. I can't, I can't, I can't engage in the kind of cognitive dissonance you all are engaging in, you know, my brain works differently. So neurodivergence and queer thinking, this is, this is something that, that has the capacity to, to really change the world, right? We need to, to be able to, to, to really look with these things, or as Donna Haraway says, to stay with the trouble. We need to be in this sort of complicated mess of emotions and feelings. We need to grieve our futures. We need to recognize as white people who are giving up our privileges, you know, um, when, when white supremacy is toppled, that we, we benefit too. Because when everybody is extended the, the kind of humanity that they deserve, everybody wins. Yeah. I think there is an analogy there what, what is happening now with, uh, with COVID and the vaccines. No, this, this um, thing that people are saying that we are not going to be okay until everybody is okay. And that, that uh, immediately relates to, to this idea of climate change and how things at the end are, are interconnected and, and we are all interdependent. Um, you know, it's going, going to the, the um, other aspect of this denial is, is the lack of understanding of, of actually who is where in terms of this privilege, you know, because obviously there is also a, a, a gradient, you no, know? is 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 uh, it's not mm -hmm. this binary like black and white. Mm -hmm. um, there is, uh, I, 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 I was looking for for a while, uh, some sort of um, data from the economic side to, to give me a clear idea of, of if we are talking about the 10% of the population that, you know, produces half of all the CO2 emissions, mm -hmm. um, who are those 10%? How, how we are accounting? And there is a, a, an economic way of doing that because at the end, consumer, uh, consumerism is driving uh, uh, pollution, no? it's, it's driving the, the, uh, the production of CO2. Mm -hmm. There is a direct correlation, correlation there. So I found there is a, a study from, from the, um, well, there are a couple from the World Bank and the Swiss Bank and others. Um, basically, they say, um, if, if you account for everything you own, uh, you know, the money you have, the properties you own, the car and everything, if you are between 100,000 US dollar and $1 million, you are in that 10% of the wealthiest in the planet. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you are above 1 million US dollar, you are in the 1% richer. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. if you break down that 1%, it's even crazier because it's like 0.05, I think, percent um, are producing like 20% of the CO2 uh, mm -hmm. uh, with their lifestyles. No, I'm obviously talking about the super rich. Um, mm -hmm. So these- these They're flying to space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not? No, <laughs> yeah. we can all do it in the future. That's, uh, I guess- that 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 takes me to the next part of, of these three topics. I, I think we touch a little bit long-term uh, thinking. Maybe we could also go back a little bit on that, but is the idea of limits. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there are some clear things, some clear uh, limits. I've, I've been talking about it with, with uh, people from, from the science, you no know, chemists and biologists, and there are clear, clear, you know, limits in the physical world. 
but mm -hmm. again, from from your perspective, from from this mix, interesting mix of uh, geography, philosophy, and uh, anthropology, what what will be the limits that you think we should be paying more attention to, or should be more aware of, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of because human behavior, or mm -hmm. I don't know. Sure, I think a lot about the limits of geoengineering. Um, Elizabeth Colbert just came out with a new a new book in which she discusses geoengineering um, as potentially a necessary evil, right? Arguing that humans have done so much damage by controlling, trying attempting to control the earth, that maybe the only thing that's going to get us out is more control, is control of control, is what we need maybe to mitigate climate change impacts. And I don't know about that, you know, I don't know the science, but that scares me. In my, in my gut, not only because we simply have no idea how this will affect the planet long-term, this kind of acute geoengineering, um, but also because I think it might act as a band-aid that allows us to continue with this life as we know it, rather than forcing us to make the changes, the economic, the cultural, the, the personal, otherwise, these changes that transition us away from large-scale resource extraction, right? Anything that might rationalize the continuation of, of current extractive economy, right, even on the short term, deserves serious scrutiny. And I think geoengineering might be one of those things. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, great. I, I have discussed that with uh, with um, uh, paleoecologist, uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jacqueline Gill. And it, it was uh, clear in that discussion that, you know, messing, messing with complex systems in the natural world is a really, really terrible idea. There have been some, some uh, quite many examples of us trying to meddle around with ecosystems and things have been going really, really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to do that at, at a planetary scale is, is, is really, really a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, one of the ex examples and direct, direct, connects directly to colonialism is the introduction of species in islands like uh, Australia, for example, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and how the the idea of being able or, or thinking that we were able to control things have gone mm -hmm. really really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so I I had a question there and I just it just went away. Um, the the idea in anthropology of these limits concerns I guess this, this is the question. Um, to behavior in a sense of what uh, what these worldviews should be aiming at. In in mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say is more from a philosophical perspective. No, mm -hmm. the the inspiration from maybe other other uh, other cultures. I'm 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 probably in my head now. I'm, I'm remember I don't remember the group of of these people in the in the Amazon where uh, it's, a, it's a matriarchal society and they have a very specific worldview where the, the, the objective is, is not necessarily personal, it's a communal thing. Mm -hmm. And I've been, I've been reading some interesting things from anthropology. Um, there is this, this amazing author called Arturo Escobar from Colombia. And mm -hmm. he's talking a lot, a lot about the, these, these uh, the, the, the things that we could do in the future mm -hmm. should necessarily come from the local and the communal. This, this, this problem is, is so complicated. It's, they call it a wicked problem, right? Because yeah. it, is, it is both so local and so global. It's, it's so multi-scalar that it yeah. can be difficult to hold it all at one time, right? And we both need to and don't need to hold it all at one time. 
Um, I think that we have to get used to uh, letting those scales exist within us and we don't have to understand them all intimately, right? We just need to let that complexity exist within our bodies, right? One thing we need to do is, is, is sort of reanimate the world, just speaking to, to other cultures, right? Um, especially indigenous cultures all over the world, right? F for whom the world held, was sacred, is sacred, right? Um, yeah. This had to be stripped, mountains had to be seen as inert, trees had to be seen as objects in order for the kind of economy that we're, we're existing within to, to function, to make sense on a philosophical level, right? So reanimating the world, really being in right relation with, yes. with uh, these, these, these quote unquote inanimate objects like, like trees, mountains, rivers, right? Extending personhood to things like rivers, right? Which is happening in places in the world. This sort of reanimation uh, mimics the, 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 the extension of life uh, and personhood that we really need to, to get out of the system. I think we need to be honest with ourselves that the situation is really dire, you know, just speaking about limits. Um, hope can be violent, you know, and that it can have a, a blinding effect. It's kind of like ignorant optimism about the state of things, you know. But um, as my good friend Lutzi Segu says, hope is also a discipline. We, we need hope, but the right kind. People always ask me, you know, I'm not great at parties and often talking about this kind of stuff. And they always ask me, where do you find hope, you know? And I answer in, in harm reduction, in anti-racism. You know, we can set things in motion now that significantly reduce harm and that might mitigate the worst impacts on the people who, who don't have the resources to bounce back. You know, we can do that. We can't get away from climate change impacts. That's, those are happening, you know, yes. but we can mitigate harm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That was amazing. Uh, you you put in words what I, I I was rambling a moment ago. The 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 ultimate thing is is to understand the preciousness of life as a as, mm -hmm. as a big concept. No, that's that's uh, I, I think what I wanted to uh, end up. You know, is is how can we en enhance life, whatever that means, in all the different diversity diverse places in in the entire planet. But we do need to understand that the way that we've been doing things um, has um, uh, denied that right to hundreds and millions of people around the planet. And there is the need for for some some uh, some deep changes. No, I, I was reading uh, just yesterday in 1921. Uh, so just before uh, the First World War ended, um, around one quarter of the planet population was under Britain rule. And that's a lot of people, one quarter mm -hmm. of the population. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to understand, surely, for people in Europe. And I know because I have really good friends. I was you know, talking about this, this uh, complexity in, 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 in psychology. There are really amazing people. When I, but when I start talking about you know, the impacts that still today have colonialism in, 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 in places like Africa and in Latin America, Latin America is the one that I know obviously the most, um, they don't, don't really engage with that. They, they think that it's just, you know, it's old stories, it's all past, things are different now. And, and, and obviously it's not, no, it's, there are some, some legacies and colonialism now, now looks in a, in a, in a much different way. Um, there are, there are, we, we are reaching out the, reaching out the end of, of the conversation. This, this idea of, of limits and long-term thinking is, is really, really interesting what you said. I uh, usually end the, the uh, interviews with three questions that are very philosophical and very, mm -hmm. very crazy. So all answers are correct, no, <laughs> no right or wrong answers. So the first one goes along the lines of um, the longest living species are cyanobacteria, uh, 
that have existed okay. for two and a half billion years, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the oldest human, standing human structure is just a few thousand years old. So the mm-hmm. difference is substantial. How, mm-hmm. how do you see human development visible from this point of view? It's like, mm-hmm. like really smashing the barrier of long-term thinking and, and even mm-hmm. evolution and just going really, really far. How, how do you think of, of, human, of human development in that way? Right. I, I think humans need to, first of all, check themselves a little bit, right? We've, we've existed, you know, on the very, uh, the very, very, very end of, of the Earth's existence, right? And, and we, uh, in the, in, especially in the past few hundred years, have, have assumed ourselves sort of the masters of, of the Earth. And part of what climate change is, is doing to the sort of privileged positionalities is reminding them that they're not. That the earth is actually ultimately in charge um and it is you know in some ways it, it's responding to human input in a way that is, is putting humans back in their place um so to speak cyanobacteria i'm glad you mentioned that because cyanobacteria give me uh, actually a lot of hope because cyanobacteria are the last time this sort of massive um atmospheric shift happened uh was correct me if i'm wrong but because cyanobacteria alter the Earth's atmosphere to turn it into an oxygen-based atmosphere, right? Which allowed humans, uh, mammals, reptiles, all the, all the beings that exist now to, to thrive, right? And we still have cyanobacteria. They yes. still exist today. So I like to think as a sort of philosophical, um, sort of like post-humanism exercise, you know, what can we learn from cyanobacteria, right? We put in these sort of long-term atmospheric changes into motion, uh, what can we learn from cyanobacteria? How can we survive this transition? You know, and also make way for forms of life that we might not even imagine. Yeah. Yeah, that that is is um, coming back to this idea of, of what is important here is is life, the concept, mm-hmm. the big broad concept of life, and and how I guess we humans uh, we should be stewards of it, no? Which is a uh, is a is a is a position, is an understanding that in in many communities around the world is being going for thousands of years. Is is us that that uh, we have shifted away from it, and and the idea of of the masters of of this planet, and we have these resources for our own mm-hmm. private benefit. Mm-hmm. We, we really need to move away from 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 that i completely agree mm-hmm. um the, the next question is is more related to to probably work as a scientific but i i think it can be also moved to to you know ordinary life there are so many examples and is the the um the importance of failure in in this mm-hmm. in discovery and human progress mm-hmm. we are so good at punishing when somebody does something wrong Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think failing is is important? What has been your experience, especially as as a PhD student? <laughs> yeah, we don't know how to fail. You know, we don't know how to fail. There's a book um, that I enjoy called "The Queer Art of Failure" that discusses this, the role failure has in in sort of creation and creative projects. I think, along with failure, what we really need is is to learn how to to be accountable and to grieve. Right, because failure, implicit within failure is this idea that you've done something, you've done something that didn't quite work. Okay, show some accountability for that, grieve that possibility and move on. We, what we need to do now is grieve the fact that we've already failed in many ways. Capitalism has failed and continues to fail people all over the world. 
we need to seriously integrate and grieve that and show some significant accountability in order to create a better future. If we can't grieve that, you know, we're in denial, right? Um, we need to first acknowledge our failure, that we are failing uh, as a society. And, and, you know, we all have micro failures every day. And instead of letting that get us down, you know, we need to just acknowledge that that's, that's, that's actually part of what changes the world, that acknowledgement of failure, that grieving of that failure, that accountability. Um, that's what that's what allows us to shift course. Yeah, that that's a very interesting. I I um I haven't connected the idea of failing uh, to an, an economic aspect, which obviously now that I think of makes complete sense in 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 a capitalist capitalist society, you know, in a capitalist you know uh, structure. Um, is it's all about maximization of profits and mm -hmm. whatever fails uh, goes against that maximization so that probably is why i'm just reflecting again that's probably why the uh, the whole idea of failing is is uh, is seen as something negative i don't know mm -hmm. if if um again in in if, if you know of other cultures having a different perspective on on the idea of failure especially in in the design world i mean we're we could we could talk about it as a subculture, but let's say just as a guild, no, as a profession, mm -hmm. um, we know that failing is is inevitable. We embrace mm -hmm. it, and and we have a process in which we deal with failure, mm -hmm. and and we have learned how to maximize the use of failure for our own benefit. But talking, mm -hmm. you know, from 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 a from a probably anthropology aspect and and a, and a cultural side, do you mm -hmm. do you know of any 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 other ways of seeing failure on, and, and getting things wrong? I mean, I think that there, again, there are infinitely many ways of seeing failure. And, and the important thing is, is not to, to let failure uh, become something that inhibits action, right? Um, and I think, yeah, the people in, in the design world, in the sort of computer programming world, in the, in the sort of hard sciences, there is this understanding that there will be many failures before there is a success. Right. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem to filter into the sort of broader idea of failure as a concept, you know, um, especially when we're thinking about ourselves as people. Right. We don't want part of the reason I think climate change is so hard for people to integrate people who are like, no, that's not happening is because it, it implies that, you know, our, we, we have failed in some way personally, you know, that the truck that we have, that the three kids we have, that, you know, our dreams. Um, those are failing the world and they're making, they're turning me into a bad person, right? Mm. But if we can get rid of that sort of moralization of failure, if we can get rid of that label, failure equals bad, I think that, that we, 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 we go a large way toward, uh, toward the, the work we need to, to, to do yeah. to really integrate these changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's uh, that's a really great way of being uh, of seeing. I, I it, it reminds me a little bit what I what I sometimes say to my students when we are talking about all all these topics. Um, I tell them because you know, especially for for uh, for a young person, I can just imagine. I mean, I'm almost fifty, so uh, I'm, I've been I've been dealing with this in in in, in recent times. But just starting your life and having this this huge amount of pressure uh, on, on in front of you is it must be daunting I'm, I'm i'm sure of it so what i what i normally said to them is is you you are not guilty of anything you are not responsible for the mess we are living in mm -hmm. we do are responsible 
for not changing no mm -hmm. we are we are responsible for seeing things that are going wrong mm -hmm. that we have failed and not mm -hmm. accepting that we need to change that's that's mm -hmm. where we are uh, you know where we can find uh, uh, if you want to find guilt or you want to find responsibility is is there mm -hmm. uh, seeing things understanding things and not doing anything about it no mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so Thank you. Um, last one, last question. And this is, this is um, for you to go anywhere you want completely. Um, describe us, uh, describe for us the future of your choosing. And you can pick a future that could be relatively near a hundred time, a hundred years from now, or a thousand mm -hmm. or 10,000 years. What, what would mm -hmm. be the future that, that you would like to see? Yeah, um, I'm gonna stick to a hundred years from now. Um, you know, I, and this is a, this is a an exercise in in hope and imagining, right? I I see countries pulling together truly as a global collective. You know, I see them being 100% or near carbon neutral. I see policies in place to tackle wealth and racial inequality in ways we can only even begin to imagine right now. You know, I see I see white people and people of color having true honest friendships. I mean, really bridging that abyss that separates them. I see people integrating and grieving and really looking at the horrors of climate change rather than looking away from them. You know, and I see I see all of this putting people in the best possible position for adapting to the changes we we know are coming, but can't quite see yet. Okay. That's a future where I would like to live in for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, well, this is this has been really amazing, um, Kendra. I I really appreciate. It. I, I don't know if there is anything else you would like to to share something in the back burner that you're no, okay. No, I think that's great. Thank you very much. Okay, well then that's it for 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 this time. I appreciate so much, and thank you, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Like always, I would like to finish with just a few thoughts as reflection of this amazing conversation. Kendra has amazing ideas, very interesting approach to things uh, that I think are absolutely worth to deep thought. Um, one of them is clear, um, all related to climate change and sustainability is centering justice and fairness. Data is very clear. The ones that have benefited the most, have contributed the most to the problem and are better prepared for any future. And it's exactly the opposite for most of the planet. They have contributed the less and they will suffer the most, the impacts of climate change. Another very interesting idea that I never thought about was uh, queer thinking as a form of inspiration for how to break from preconceived ideas of what should be or what the world should look like. It is clear that the way that we have been framing problems and creating solutions have put us in the situation we are right now. So we need to change from, from that perspective, from that same origin, the way we frame problems and the way we propose solutions. There were many, many other things, but I, I would like to close just with one last that I, I thought was extraordinarily interesting, and it's the idea of grieving. This is not easy to say because I know nobody wants to hear it, but in order to reduce the effects of future climate change, 
we need to make some radical changes to our lives today. And that means losing some of the benefits and some of the excess, to be honest, that many of us live with. So the idea of grieving, the idea of being able to understand how to let go and to process that loss is, I find it extremely interesting. I will try to explore it a little bit more in future interviews. I appreciate very much that you listen to this podcast. There are more interviews coming, so please subscribe. And if you can, also please comment. It will be very interesting to know your thoughts. Uh, thank you very much and see you the next time. Future Exploration is produced and written by me, Victor Martinez. Music is composed by Rafael Crooks, Udayana Lugo, and Mauro and Daniel Martinez. Future Exploration is licensed under the Creative Commons with attribution and non-commercial use.